Welcome to the Scripts and Scribes podcast. I'm your host, Kevin Fukunaga. Thanks for procrastinating with us today, writers. Uh, today, we've got a great show for you uh, with a guest that I'm very excited to chat with. He's a graduate of USC screenwriting program, Fight On, and he's had multiple scripts on the official year-end blacklist. Since then, he's gone on to sell specs to Warner Brothers and Fox. His script, 1031, sold to Orion and is currently in pre-production, produced by Eli Roth, Roger Birnbaum, and our good friend John Zalzerny. Another screenplay, Infinite, sold to Paramount and is now in post-production with an August 2020 release date scheduled, starring Mark Wahlberg, directed by Antoine Fuqua. He's also written for Training Day on CBS and Deputy on Fox. He is Ian Shore. Thanks for coming on, Ian. Thanks for having me, Kevin. Before we get started, I wanted to say to listeners, Ian's manager, John Zalzierny, has been on the podcast multiple times and mentioned Ian in his story multiple times. So if you get a chance, go take a listen to those. You can see the other side, the representation and development side. But now we're going to get Ian's take on everything and his how he got started and what he's got, he's got going on and all that good stuff. So let's start at the beginning, Ian. I know you are from Sundance country. You're from Salt... Uh, Park City, Utah. Uh, can you explain yeah. to us, the listeners, exactly how you started this whole journey? Sure. Uh, so, uh, growing up in in Park City, uh, every year when Sundance would happen, uh, I would get so excited about all these new filmmakers coming into town. Like, you know, I was always a giant movie geek, and the the year that I moved to Park City was. 1992, so that was the year of uh, Reservoir Dogs and El Mariachi. Uh, so there was all kinds of wild stuff happening in, in the independent film world. Uh, and even at, at that age, that was uh, a world that was really appealing to me. Um, so my, uh, my story is, um, you know, I, I kept hearing about all these, these filmmakers coming out of that festival. You know, that name Tarantino kept popping up. And... Uh, one night in 93, my parents went out on a date and they left me alone with the satellite dish. And uh, I found uh, True Romance on TV. Hmm. And it was, you know, it was the, the unedited version. And it was a movie that, you know, an 11 year old should not be watching at all. Uh, but I was just completely enthralled by this. And it was, it was the first time that I ever noticed that somebody had fun writing the words that the characters were saying. There was this palpable sense of, joy and, and energy to the movie. And I remember thinking to myself, I, I want to have that kind of fun. So uh, that year, uh, I bought like a screenwriting manual. Uh, I picked up a copy of uh, the train spotting screenplay at Barnes and Noble because uh, I tried to go see that movie in the theater. They wouldn't let me in. So I walked next door to the bookstore and just bought the script uh, and decided that I was going to uh, write my own super hard R drug movie, <laughs> even though I was you know, like an eighth grader living in Utah who had never seen drugs. Uh, so yeah, that, that, the script was written on a, like a Macintosh classic, like one of those like computers that looks like a cinder block and printed on dot matrix computer paper. Uh, <laughs> so it's, it's still sitting in a closet somewhere. And uh, I, I would love to just like have a bunch of people come over one night and, take a few shots and uh, and do like a live reading of this thing because I guarantee you it would be hilarious. <laughs> okay, uh, so from that from that original script, do you still remember the title of it? 
Uh, yeah, it was called Zero. I don't remember why. <laughs> Excellent. From there, how did you turn it into, again, uh, how did you turn that into your career? Well, uh, after, after writing that script, uh, I, um, I started, uh, I started writing one script per year, every year for the rest of my life, basically. Wow. I, I, it, it was something that I had a lot of fun with and, uh, you know, it was, it was like my, it was my hobbies since I, you know, I was never particularly good at sports or, you know, theater or any of the, the, the usual high school stuff. But this was something that I, I felt like I could, I could do. Um, and so I, you know, I started just, uh, trying to make myself adhere to like a professional work that work ethic, even when I wasn't a pro. Uh, so, you know, wrote, you know, a few more scripts over the years until, Around the time I was 19, I uh, I finally had a script that people could read all in one sitting. That which to me meant was it was good. So I was like, oh great, okay, well maybe maybe I can sell this thing. So the problem is I'm you know I'm still living in Park City. I'm uh, at, living at my mom's place, going to community college. Uh, I don't have an agent. I don't have a manager. I don't have a lawyer. But what I do have is the Hollywood Creative Directory, the, the old phone book of producers' names and numbers. Right, right. And I've, so I've got that and a cell phone, and uh, <laughs> apparently not a lot of common sense because what I decided to do is create a, a fake management company uh, out of my bedroom. Uh, I, I create this company called Sundance Literary Management, uh, and I, I use this alias, this, uh, this manager named David Wartz who would call up these different companies and say, Hey, this is David Lord. I'm with Sundance literary in park city. We're a new branch of the Sundance Institute representing writers from our summer labs. I've got a client who I think is really up your alley and I'd love to send a sample your way. <laughs> so that was, that was how I got my first meetings. This is how I got my first meetings. And I was, like, I would like, 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 you know, producers would call David back and be like, Hey, we, we like this. We want to meet with Ian. And I'd be like, all right, well, Ian will be there, you know, next week. And so I would fly out to these meetings and just sweat the whole time, praying that they didn't recognize my voice. <laughs> right, right. So uh, what what eventually happened was uh, uh, a producer uh, offered like a, a $1 option on the script, which, you know, for me at that age, I'm like, hey, that's cash money. That's $1 I didn't have before. Like, I think I'm a professional now. So I decided to have my you know, managers start calling agents to see if I could get real representation. Right. So through some phone Kung Fu, I wound up on the phone at William Morris with an agent from Spike Lee's team. And I'm, I'm giving him the whole uh, Sundance literary spiel. And he stops me. And he's like, Hey, wait, 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 just, I've been telling you guys at Sundance to do this for years. Just start your own shingle, represent your own writers. Okay. Anybody who doesn't have LA agency representation I want you to overnight me their scripts. Like, here's my FedEx number. Put it on my tab. Get me what you got. So I hung up. And I was like, fuck, I got to get more clients. So <laughs> I started calling my high school buddies being like, hey, you wrote a script one time, right? Good. Give it to me. So I took this stack <laughs> of terrible, terrible screenplays written by teenagers and my terrible screenplay on top of it, mailed it off to this dude. And uh, that was on a Friday. Monday morning rolls around. And I get this call on my cell phone from a Utah number. So I don't answer it as David. I just say, hello. 
And they say, is David Morse there? And I say, speaking. And they say, hi, David, this is the Sundance Institute. Apparently, you've been fraudulently impersonating our company. So I, I like, click, just hang up on him. Put the phone off, stick it in my backpack, ride my bicycle to community college, and just sit there, just, like, sweating all day long, be like, oh, man, I'm so hosed. Come out at the end of the day and turn the phone back on. There's, there's four messages from Sundance that I just delete without listening to. I come home and I find in David's email box this cease and desist letter from Sundance's lawyers threatening to sue me if I, you know, don't stop. So I decided I was just going to quit the management game and focus on writing. Uh, but what's what's wild is a few years later when, you know, I graduated film school and started my career for real, I would occasionally sit down on general meetings with people that David had talked to back in the day on the phone. So I'd be like... <laughs> You don't, you don't know me, but we have spoken before. Did you tell, do you tell them the whole story at that point? I tell, I, yeah, I, I tell them the whole story. That, um, that is brilliant. It was, uh, it, it was something that would be very hard to get away with now because, uh, you know, this was in the early days of the internet, uh, and, uh, now you'd have to like, you know, create like your own website and your own email account. And you'd essentially have to really create your own management company now. Right. Right. Uh, <laughs> this was like the, the last time you could really get away with that. That's so funny. That's, that's gold. I mean, that's, that's hysterical. Um, and okay. So <laughs> after this fake management company and you went to film school at usc in the screenwriting program uh how did you take that to getting actual representation like how did you get actual representation after Sun the sundance literary institute <laughs> after i uh, i stopped representing myself right um so uh yeah so i, I um i you know, eventually after like doing some community college and doing some traveling was, uh, you know, able to beef up my portfolio enough that I could get into film school. Uh, so went to USC and, you know, spent the four years there just trying to crank out enough scripts that like I could have something that just felt undeniable by the time I graduated. Mm -hmm. Uh, it was like, sheer repetition i was probably writing three scripts a year when i was in there um so uh when i graduated uh they did this thing called first pitch where they uh let all the graduating screenwriters loose in the ballroom of the four seasons with a bunch of agents and managers and producers at different tables it's, it's kind of like speed dating you're, you're doing like little five minute pitches at different tables uh so I'm, I'm pitching my uh, senior thesis script, which was uh, a movie called Exempt that was about a bunch of teenagers with diplomatic immunity who can't get arrested for anything. So they get into all kinds of insane trouble. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm pitching this thing around and USC has taught me completely the, the wrong way to pitch. They're like, OK, you need to tell them the title, the logline, the genre, the, the opening sequence, the first act broad beats of the of the of the middle act uh you know plot point two 
given the, 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 the climax of Act 3, talk about the denouement and then leave you three minutes for questions. So it was just like an information enema and I could watch their, <laughs> uh, their eyes glaze over as I'm trying to like uh, get all, this, uh, all these words out. So finally, after bombing at a few tables, I, I sit down across from uh, this woman named Langley Pereira from Vendor Spank. And just something, she, I could tell that she's kind of bored and not really feeling the event. Uh, some part of my brain was just like, you can't bomb in front of this woman. Right. So I said, like, okay, I don't want to give you the full movie. I just want to tell you the opening scene. And if you like it, then we'll talk. So I, I pictured the opening scene, which is a bunch of teenagers high on liquid MDMA going joyriding in a cop car. And uh, it's them getting their tires shot out and getting held at gunpoint. And the twist is that none of them are going to jail tonight. Nobody's getting arrested. Nobody's even getting handcuffed. And the question is why? So off of that pitch, she read the scripts like that night, uh, the next day, I or a couple of days after that, had a meeting with her and uh, the Bender Spink team, signed with them in the room. And then uh, within about a month of graduation, we took that script out and uh, and sold it to uh, Overture back when they still existed. Mm-hmm. So that, at that at that point, I was I was basically off the races. Like uh, off of that sale, uh, I signed with an agent at CAA. Uh, spent the the next couple of years like uh doing some spec work chasing some assignments um it was it was funny that like around that time that i broke in uh within a year of my career starting uh this the wga went on strike and the economy collapsed right uh, so it was it was a really rough time to break in uh but you know once once i got through that it, it felt like the hardest thing that could have happened in my career had, had already happened at that point. The hardest obstacle to get over. Right. Now you, you had mentioned writing a script after your first one while you were in junior college or high school. I can't remember which you would specify. But I, you... I, oh I, yeah. I, I wrote my first one in eighth grade and, I, in, and oh, I, in eighth I wrote... grade. Okay. Way back then. And you would mention writing a screenplay a year, every year from then on. And then in film school, you wrote, you know, three a year or something like that. At, and then you had in that pitch fest, uh, the first look or first pitch, you met the rep from Bender Spink and so, you know, on a script and they sold it. How many scripts had you written to that point? Cause a lot of writers like to think their first script or their second script, that's the one, how many scripts had you written to that point when you actually were signed working paid writer i had probably written 20 scripts by that point wow right uh, and uh <laughs> most of them were were god awful a, a couple of them were, were readable and then finally you know that last year of college I, I i wrote one that people couldn't say no to like like i i i could tell that something had changed with that particular script because I noticed that people would read it and start thinking selfishly. They'd be something like, hmm, maybe I could benefit from being involved with this project. Right. And when you say something had changed, what was it that had changed? Uh, I, I noticed that like, rather than me having to 
bang down doors and convince people that uh, that I had a, a project that they should be involved in. Uh, people started coming to me, like the, the like people would pass the script around. It, it, it's like uh, it, it was like a piece of material that kind of went viral, where uh, all of a sudden, instead of me having to push the boulder up the hill, there was now this sense of momentum and uh, and forward progress. Uh, it was uh, th- this sense of like, okay, this one person read it and liked it, and they showed like a few people. They all responded really positively to it. It, it was a, a a scenario where where everything everything clicked, I guess. Um, and what, what's, what's funny is like the, the difference between that script and, uh, the ones I'd written before it, my first, second and third goal when I was writing the script was just to show the reader the best time possible. Like I wanted this script to just be a party. I did like, I, I knew that like, you know, these poor readers have to take home stacks of screenplays over the weekend and they're, you know, up till three in the morning with bleary eyes, just dreading reading the next one and i just wanted to give them just 90 pages of fire right and i think that's a huge thing writing and considering the reader and not just again and i don't think that you should necessarily write for someone else per se but i think what you did writing with the reader in mind meaning you know, whoever your audience is reading the screenplay physically is, is huge. That's a huge step. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's absolutely accurate. Um, something that a lot of writers miss is the idea that the, the script that you're, you're writing is first and foremost, a reading experience before sure. it can become anything else, before it can become you know, a, a blueprint for a film or a thing to attract actors or a director it first has to be this compelling reading experience for that, for that first level of people reading it. Uh, it, it it's like if you, cause you know, screenplays aren't inherently fun to read. They're, you know, they're blocky and antiquated looking, you know, we still type them in typewriter fonts. Like right. it, it's an inherently fun reading experience. So if you can, uh, if you put in that extra effort to just entertain the shit out of the first person that opens it, that means that uh, you're going to have more momentum, more momentum going into those next levels where you're going after, uh, you know, a studio, a director, an actor. Right. And you had mentioned that USC taught you the wrong way to pitch. What sort of tips would you have for uh, pre-WGA, the newer writers out there, aspiring writers out there, when they're going into their first pitch? That's that's a great question. Um, I would uh, I would say uh, first off, focus on the elements of your story that you are most excited about because that that excitement will will translate. Uh, you know, when when you're when you're pitching something, it's it's not that you're you're trying to uh, you know sell someone a a rock solid blueprint for uh you know for a project what you're selling them on is your your voice your point of view what makes you uniquely qualified to tell this story uh you're you're talking about the elements that that you're most passionate about uh 
like, you know, going back to that, that first pitch with exempts the, the whole reason I wanted to write that movie in the first place was because of that, that opening scene existing in my brain. Like I was like, that's, that's the trailer for the movie right there. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so by focusing on the element that I was most passionate about uh, that, that passion registered in, in, in the person I was talking to so obviously when you're, when you're doing like a, a full pitch as opposed to like a five minute speed pitching thing, it's, it's different. There's, there's more structure involved with it. Uh, but uh, I, I think carrying on that, that sense of, of fun and passion into the, into the pitches is, is tremendously important. It's, it's like, you know, it, it's, it's a scenario where if you can think of it as, you telling a friend about a movie that you saw last night that you just loved and you're laying out the reasons why you loved it uh, and all your favorite parts of it, then it, it uh, it's a much more effective way than uh, trying to essentially direct the movie in, in their head in the room. Right. Right. Um, okay. So you, you sell, you sign with Bender Spink, you sign with CAA based on your script, you sell it. And then, as you had mentioned, the WGA strike, the dot com crash, and all that kind of stuff happened. It was a, which was a huge hurdle for a lot of, of individuals, a lot of people, a lot of writers, filmmakers, the industry in general. How do you go? That was probably what, 2008? How do yeah, you that was 2008. How do you go from that to now, again, having sold multiple scripts, having a film that's in post-production at Paramount with Mark Wahlberg starring Antoine Fuqua, you've written on a couple TV series, you've sold multiple other scripts, including, you know, a couple in pre-production. W- what happens in between there? Oh, that's, uh, that, that's really where the, the rubber meets the road. Yeah. Uh, the uh you know the, before he died uh jc spink from vendor spink gave me one piece of advice that I, I never forgot uh he said the only people in this town who make it are the ones who bet on themselves mm-hmm. uh and that was a lesson that it took me a while to learn and uh you know had to go through a lot of heartache and a lot of fallow periods in my career uh before i i really took it to heart. So a- after uh, I signed with Venice Bank and CAA, you know, we, we wait out the, um, we wait out the strike, get back to work, uh, discover that um, the spec market is just totally in the toilet. Like uh, development budgets have been slashed because of the economy crash. Uh, and because they're just, you know, spending that money buying up IP instead of original material. Uh, and uh, I'm also, you know, I, I've, the, the spec that I wrote was, you know, it was a $40 million hard R movie starring teenagers. <laughs> so it wasn't exactly the most like marketable or producible thing. And at, at that time, like being known as the guy who writes movies about teenagers became a, a real hindrance because there are basically no teenage movie stars. Uh, you know, there was a brief period after Disturbia when it seemed like that was going to be a thing, but then uh, that uh, that turned out just to be a mirage, and 
uh, all of the, you know, Netflix didn't exist yet. So there was no real space for movies starring people that young. Uh, right. So like I had, but my, my brand was for a type of movie that the studios weren't making. Uh, my main, uh, the, the, the main thing I loved about writing, which was writing specs. Uh, there was very little market for it. And the conventional wisdom would say, uh, forget specs, um, go chase assignments and see if you can change up your brand so that you're not just, you know, the, the teenage action pillar guy. Uh, so I spent the, the following year or so chasing after God knows how many different assignments that God knows how many different studios going out on tons and tons of, of pitches for projects that were, basically half dead and being done as cattle calls by the studio where they're hearing, you know, 30 different writers bringing in pitches. Right. Uh, every, like, I think it's telling that everything that I pitched on back then never got made. Uh, right. Like I, I didn't, I didn't get those jobs. Eventually some writer did, but the, the, the movies at that point were, they, they, they started off with one foot in the grave and stayed there. Right. Uh, so, Eventually, what I realized was that all this time that I was spending uh, creating pitches for other people's pre-existing material wasn't making me any money. It wasn't advancing my career. It wasn't making me happy. Uh, I wasn't getting any cre- creative fulfillment out of it. So uh, I went back to specs. I, I wrote um, like uh, I, 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 like I, I wrote one more uh, like teenage thriller that was sort of like strangers on a train in high school that we sold to Alcon. And at that point I, uh, I decided to, uh, to switch over just to writing like, like bigger action sci-fi stuff. So my next couple of specs after that, uh, played more in like the, uh, in that big genre sandbox, like, uh, wrote a big disaster movie after that, that didn't sell, but, you know, got me enough meetings that, you know, I was able to, uh, I was able to get some assignment work off that and then wrote a uh, sort of like a sci-fi Count of Monte Cristo spec that we sold to Warner Brothers and got that on the blacklist and off of that was able to get more work. But when I, when I look back over that, you know, the, the decades since uh, I graduated, the I, I, I can't, I've lost track of how many assignments I chased, but I think I landed about five and out of the, uh, which, you know, is, <laughs> those, it's a terrible ratio. Like, you know, I, I would be broke if, if I uh, had that kind of ratio in any other line of work. <laughs> the thing that really kept me alive all, all through those years was writing specs. Uh, it was betting on myself, like, like JC said. It was uh, just every year I, I would sit down, I would work closely with John Zazierny and, uh, and, uh, you know, crank out a spec to have ready by the end of the year. And more often than not, uh, we would sell it. Like, I think during that year, during that decade, I probably wrote, uh, I probably wrote 11 specs and we sold eight of them. Wow. That's crazy. Especially after 2008, the Writers Guild strike and the spec market drying up which it's never fully recovered from. Uh, back in the salad days, pre-WGA 2008 strike, 
specs sold fair. I don't want to say frequently. It's always been difficult, but it was much easier to sell a spec than it is nowadays. It's still incredibly difficult, far more difficult, actually. Um, so that's impressive. Yeah, yeah. yeah I, 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 I always hear that, like, you know, the, the best time to be a spec writer was, uh, you know, some people say it was like, you know, it was the 80s. Some people say it was the 90s. Some people say it was the early 2000s. But no, no matter what, it, it was always before my time. Um, right. I, I just found that just by chasing the thing that I loved originally, I was able to make my career happen. Well, I remember working at Fox, and this was pre-WGA strike, and I worked in feature production, and every, I want to say quarter, uh, they would send around this giant phone book-sized uh, document, and each page, single-sided, like if you flipped over, it was a different project on the other side, was all material, spec scripts, uh, manuscripts, whatever it was, that the studio or some production company on the studio had bought. And it was basically to send it out to everybody who had a deal with Fox, right, affiliation with Fox, to gauge interest. Does, does anybody have any interest in this material? Because we have it. We own it. Does anyone want to try to do something with it? Again, it was the size of a phone book. And that's from, again, all the spec sales they had bought, all the material that Fox had dumped money into. And... So, yeah, that was far more common to sell specs. And I think, again, I, I mentioned it to John last time I spoke with him, which was, I guess, last last week. And somebody had written, I, don't, I didn't verify the fact, but that in 2019, there were 40, again, this is reported, because I'm sure there's lots of sales that aren't reported, but still... In 2019, there were 40 listed spec sales. They're probably double or triple that, but still, that's far, far fewer than there were even a few years ago. So, anyway, so to yeah, sell as many as you have in the short period of, you know, after the, the 2008 strike is pretty darn impressive. It, it's, uh, yeah, it, it's, it's an insanely competitive market. You're, you're, uh, what I've discovered is that you have to be so targeted in what you write if, if you're gonna if you're gonna write specs just because every studio is looking for a reason to say no and you know if, if you just look at it from a financial standpoint it's understandable why they want to do that because uh if you look at the movies that are making money uh things that are based on spec material are way way down on that list mm -hmm. um you know there's, there's definitely a hunger for it from the audience like people I think are, are still hungry to see original stories told. Uh, but for the studios, they see that as, as a gigantic risk. So right. you know, part of your job as, as a spec writer is just to remove all of their reasons to say no. Basically, give them, give them a case of FOMO where they, they'll be, they're afraid of, of being the person that, that said no to this thing that turned out to be amazing. Sure. And, well, because a lot of, the no's come from protecting their job as well. Meaning if they greenlight yeah. something that bombs, that could cost them their job. Oh, absolutely. Um, and uh, that's that, that part, of, part of the reason why, uh, even as I was selling specs, uh, a lot of this stuff, most of it wound up never getting made because... Uh, I was writing things that were wildly expensive that, you know, would, 
cost, you know, like the, the amount of a Marvel movie, but they're not Marvel brand. Right. Uh, so like, it, like it, you know, it, it's stuff that like, you know, almost that is not being done anymore. Uh, you know, the, those were the stories that were exciting to me. Like I, you know, I'd always been in love with those big actiony popcorn tentpole movies. Um, and uh, by, writing those on spec yeah they they, they they might sell but the the studio taking that kind of you know hundred million dollar plus risk on something uh rarely ever happens so what i what i discovered is that when, when i would write stuff that was on the cheaper side a lot of the times that would be the stuff that would get made like it's much easier to get a studio to say yes to like a five million dollar movie a two million dollar movie than it is to a $150 million extravaganza. Right. Without an IP. Right. Exactly. Um, and specs do still sell, obviously. And it's important for writers to write them, even to for, try to sell, obviously, but also as a writing sample. But you know, and you've experienced this, as have I, the OWA, the Open Writing Assignment, is how a lot of writers, feature writers especially, make their living. The, the, you called it a cattle call. You know, I've heard it called beauty pageants, but assignment chasing. Can you explain yeah. what that process is like? Well, I, I, I should uh, I should make a, a differentiation here that there there are you know there are open writing assignments that aren't necessarily cattle calls where the, the studio is being sure more targeted in, in who they reach out to, uh, you know, and this is, uh, you know, this, this is why it's important to have an agent that you trust because you, you can ask them like, okay, how many other people are going after this thing? Like, am I, you know, am I the 30th guy in line or are they going after like four people? Right. Right. Uh, but I think a so, lot of our listeners would fall into the category of, you know, show me a bunch of quote unquote, cheap, young, new, hot writers that we can bring in and see what they've got yeah, kind of thing. If, if, <laughs> you're in a, you're, you're in a different ball game if, now, I'm sure, but yeah. Yeah. If, if you're, if you're breaking in, like if you, if your career is on the come up, then yeah, you're going to be going out on, on a lot of the, these cattle calls. Uh, so in terms of, of that process, um, the, uh, the things I learned is that you really need to be a sniper as opposed to a shotgun guy. Uh, and by that, I, I mean, when I first signed with my agency and they were sending me out on like a, a different OWA every couple of weeks, I was just saying yes to everything because I was like desperate to make some money. Um, it didn't matter if I particularly liked the, 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 pro the project or the genre, or if I felt like I was right for it, or if I could see the movie in my head, or if I thought there was even a movie there it was just a job opportunity. I was, you know, basically just doing spray and pray. I, I was like trying to go after everything, throw everything at the wall and just see what would stick. Um, and turned out that nothing did, uh, right. like, you know, all those chase that year. I, I didn't, I didn't get any of them. Uh, so w what I learned from that was, when I was more targeted and specific in what type of assignments I would chase after, then those were the jobs I would typically land. Like, and, and the, I guess the, uh, 
the protocol for me was I would ask myself, okay, can I see this whole movie in my head? Do I like when I hear this concept, can I picture what the three acts are? Like, am I going to get lost in the woods in this and just try to bullshit my way through the pitch? Or do I actually see the foundation of the story here? Like, does, does the car have an engine? Uh, and if the answer is yes, and if it's a piece of material that I get excited about, uh, then I'll chase the assignment. Because uh, if it's not something you are super stoked on, that means that you're going to spend months convincing the studio to hire you because it, it, it takes forever to even get the job. You have to do the song and dance up through multiple levels uh, of people who could potentially say no and make all of that time worth nothing. Uh, and then if you make it through all that and get the job, then you are uh, stuck writing something that you're not passionate about for the next few months and you, uh, or, you know, potentially a year, potentially longer and it sucks all the joy out of writing. Uh, it's like when, when people talk about when people talk about hack work, that's that's what I think of. It, it's a job that your your heart is not in, uh, that you are doing for mercenary reasons. Right. Uh, so like, I, I I found that like you know if, if I hear about a a concept that I just that I think is really cool, the, a property I really love, and I can see the movie in my head. And that's the one I say yes to. Right. That's actually the, great, great advice. That's the one I focus on. Right. No, that's actually great advice. And I think that uh, that's something that, that writers really, because when you are starting out, every opportunity, every OWA that comes your way sounds like a job opportunity. And it technically, I guess, in theory is. But you have to, as a writer, invest a substantial amount of time, days, maybe even weeks, on breaking this idea down. This Sometimes it's a script and they want you to rewrite it. And so you got to come back with your pitch of what you would change, whatever. Or it's just an article in a magazine or just an idea they had. But you have to develop an idea and come back and pitch it to them. And that's not, that, that's not necessarily easy, especially if you're not sold on it. You just want to go out for the job. So spending your time focusing on what you truly believe in is one, economical in terms of your time because it is very limited. But two, it's going to be better because you're passionate about it or you believe in it. So, no, that's fantastic. And that's something that I think a lot of uh, newer writers or you know a lot of pre-WGA writers uh, haven't, may not have, I should say, considered. And I think that that's great. Oh yeah, it, it, it's it's a it, it's a question you have to ask yourself before you go after any assignment is is my time best spent chasing this thing compared to say developing my own piece of original material like like which which one is going to benefit my career more right because uh, but... like you know if you're a particularly fast writer you could potentially write your own screenplay in the time that it takes you to land a, a, an OWA job right but I think a lot of newer writers think that it's an opportunity and I can't pass it up because I don't know when the next one's going to come along. Not realizing, like you said, you could use that time elsewhere writing a new spec, which may or may not sell, but maybe that will lead to a job where you get hired. You know, you know what I mean? It's something that spending your time on writing things that you believe in versus just taking the, even though it's an opportunity, it's opportunity in quotes, I guess that, 
you're, right, you're right. still going to spend a lot of time and effort and brain power working on a lot of bandwidth. Yeah, it, 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 it's hard advice to take because, you know, when, when you're first breaking in and you are, you know, hungry for that next paycheck, you're you're operating from a place of scarcity and uh, your odds of getting a job and your odds of doing great work are so much better if, if you psychologically are operating from a place of abundance. Right. And, you know, it, it's hard to bet when you don't have shit. So, uh, you know, it, just by by focusing on the stuff that that you love and that you, you are confident that you can knock out of the park, it means that uh, you're not wasting your time. Right. Now, we've heard little bits and pieces and from John Zalzerny's perspective on how Infinite was developed. But maybe you can explain your experience with infinite your film that's going to be coming out august 2020 from paramount again mark Wahlberg, antoine fuqua is brilliant how was that how did that come about and how was it work you know making a big budget uh, gigantic film for Paramount? it's not a small movie it's a big movie so uh let's i I would love to hear uh, your take yeah paramount's taking uh they're taking a big risk on that i hope uh hope it pays off um but the the backstory of Infinite could honestly be its own movie. It's it's uh, it's, it's pretty incredible how this thing came together. Um, so this uh, this writer named Eric Mykrantz, um, he, uh, he he wrote the book, uh, the Reincarnationist Papers that Infinite is based on, and he self published it, um, and uh, somehow a copy of the book wound up sitting on a shelf in a, uh, a bathroom in a tea house in Kathmandu. And uh, <laughs> this, like, this was probably back in, I want to say 2012. Uh, this executive named, uh, named Rafi Krohn uh, was in, it was in Kathmandu. He just got done doing, I think the, uh, the promotion tour for um, Matt Reeves' movie, Let Me In. He's taking a little time off after that, and so he's in Kemendu. He's he's sick as a dog. He's in the, he's in that bathroom, and he spots this book sitting on the shelf. And uh, when he opens it, there's a the first page of the book has this message that is basically a like a Willy Wonka bounty uh, that says like anybody who finds this book and helps me get it sold to a, a publisher or get it turned into a movie, I will give you X financial reward. Hmm. Uh, so he's like, huh, that's, that's interesting. So he starts, starts reading it and realizes there's totally a movie in this book. Uh, the, the, the book is, a uh, about a secret society of people who can reincarnate upon death and retain all of their past memories and skill sets. So they form this kind of secret club of Bruce Wayne's essentially like people who've had multiple lifetimes to get good at whatever they wanted and attain power and resources and money. Uh, the main the main character is a a guy diagnosed with schizophrenia at a young age because he has all these memories that aren't his, who discovers that he's actually a member of this group. Uh, so the uh, just just based on on that that concept, Rafi realizes this is this is a movie. So he comes back to the U.S. He tracks down Eric. Uh, they they make an agreement to to go set the book up. Um, 
he uh, Rafi partners up with uh, Imagine, and they start sending the the book out to different writers. So this is it's now 2013. Uh, I I get the book sent to me. I start reading it, and I'm like, holy shit, this is this is so damn cool. This is like this is like the Matrix. Like I I 100% see what this movie is. I'm so excited to write this. Like it just it lit up all the pleasure centers in my head. Like like it had everything that I love in movies. It had like opportunities for incredible action and this wild world building and wish fulfillment. And, uh, it, it was, it was everything that I could want in, in a summer blockbuster. So I, I go into, uh, to imagine and I pitch them, uh, my, my version of it and they don't go for it. They're like, okay, so you, you're pitching us the matrix, but what we want is like the Harry Potter version. And what? so I was like, all right, well, <laughs> Uh, go with God. Uh, <laughs> so uh, I was so bummed out after that. Like, you know, like every writer has like the one that got away, and this was that for me. Like, I could, I was still thinking about the thing a year later. Uh, so what happened was they apparently didn't find a take that they liked, uh, and Imagine dropped off, uh, and. Uh, Rafi remembered liking my pitch for it. So he got in touch with John Zazirni and said, like, do you think Ian would want to just adapt the book on spec? Uh, you know, so John presents that idea to me and I'm like, hell yeah, absolutely. So John uh, puts an option on the book. So it's like, oh, okay, how long do you think it'll take you to adapt this? And I was like, well, I'm doing it for free. So I'm going to have to drop it whenever I get a paying job. So I think I'll need like a year. Uh, it took three years. <laughs> I, like, <laughs> I, and it, like the first year I just, I was spent uh, writing the first 50 pages over and over and over again, because I just could not track the damn thing. Like it, there was so much world building and so many rules and all of this, all of this complicated shit that, you know, the matrix looks, you know, they, they, the matrix makes it look effortless. And when I was trying to adapt this thing, I just realized how, insanely difficult it is to do a, a, a big in-depth world creation movie. Um, so finally, uh, you know, finally after, after that first year was able to uh, crack a central problem that I was having with the story, uh, got the, uh, you know, fi finally got the, the, the script finished, you know, did a ton of rewrites on it, with, uh, working closely with, with John Zavirny, uh, managed to get the thing ready for market with like a month left on the option. <laughs> and uh, in the spring of 2017, we, we take it out to market. Uh, Paramount comes in early, really aggressively uh, and uh, buys it uh, before anybody else had a chance to make a bid. Um, and, at that point, I was like, okay, this this is this is great. Like, you know, I feel like the I feel like the movie is actually, you know, this this thing might actually happen. But what I realized is that the the script was bought when there was a uh, an interim president at Paramount, who oh. <laughs> uh, then you know was gone like a uh, you know a couple weeks later. New guy comes in, and when the new guy takes over, he's like, uh, you know takes a look at the slate and just just crosses infinite off so like i i don't even realize it but the project basically dies mm -hmm. uh, 
the the reason it came back to life is the the producer on it, uh, Lorenzo Di Bonaventura, uh, who was just a huge champion for the movie, who just really believed in the damn thing from day one, uh, slipped it to Antoine Fuqua, uh, who he'd worked with on uh, Shooter with Mark Wahlberg and uh, Antoine did Training Day when Lorenzo was running was was running Warner Brothers, so he's, he he knew Antoine was looking for something like this, so he gives it to, to Antoine and Antoine signs on and that that convinces Paramount that they might have something here. Uh, so at at that point, uh, they take it out to cast. We get Chris Evans on it for a hot minute. He drops off. Uh, Wahlberg comes on. They uh, and they start, started shooting it in uh, September of 2019 and finished just before Christmas of uh, of this past year. Wow! So that's uh, quite the quite the journey from the where where was the the book left? Kathmandu? It yeah yeah it is see how it's Kathmandu. So apparently uh. I think the the author of the book uh, he's he's got to pay up to Rafi. I think I think Rafi uh, got that bounty. <laughs> Although he said published, has it been published? Or did they actually release the uh, an adaptation yeah, well, um, for the book itself? Uh, yes, the uh, uh, off of the um, the movie getting made, uh, I believe uh, the author of the book uh, got an agent. I believe he got a publishing deal. Uh, you know, the, the 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 book's coming out, getting re released in conjunction with the movie. Uh, so it's, it's been, uh, yeah, it's, it's been a pretty wild ride for everybody involved. Wow. I, I did say, I guess he has earned it. That's pretty amazing. Um, <laughs> how did, how did the book get to Kathmandu? Do, do, do you know? Nobody knows. Oh, uh, not even, not even Eric knows. You know, it's something that like <laughs> he had his own little Amazon page for or something like that. And, uh, just, the the amount of things that had to go, to go right in order for this to happen are utterly staggering because uh, you know and not just the you know the kismet of Rafi finding the, the book in the tea house um, but you know having to pitch on it and not getting the job uh, you know spending like an insane amount of time trying to crack the adaptation just wanting to quit the entire time I was working on it because it was just, you know, I'm like, this isn't fun. It's too hard. Why am I even doing this? Uh, and then, <laughs> you know, selling it to a studio that had just lost, that was about to lose its president, you know, having a movie that costs $150 million. that's not based on a comic book or a toy. Uh, it, there's a thousand factors that were going against this thing. So, uh, seeing that this thing is actually going to come out this summer feels like a miracle. Yeah, that's pretty amazing. Um, now, you have sold a number of feature specs, and you've worked in the feature world, but you've also done work on television. You've written for television, both on Training Day for CBS and Deputy on Fox. How did you make that transition and... Uh, how do you see yourself? And I know there are writers who do both, but it, it's, I think it's, it's far less frequent for it to happen on a regular basis. That, that's a, that, that's a great question. And the, the answer is uh, I, 
<laughs> the answer is I wish that I had played it smarter back in film school or when I was younger uh, because the majority of, of working writers work in TV. Um, and the, uh, like, the... Especially now. The focus is, oh, ab- absolutely now. Like, there's, there's uh, you know, I'm not sure what the stats are, but there's something like quadruple the number of employed writers working on shows as opposed to movies. Mm-hmm. Now, like, when I, was in, when I was in film school, uh, we hadn't quite hit, like, peak TV yet. Like, this is back in, like, you know, 2006, 2007. So there was Lost, uh, The Shield, like, The Sopranos had already come and gone. Um, but we, we hadn't hit, like, uh, you know, Breaking Bad and Mad Men. And, like, like it, TV wasn't super cool yet. Right. Uh, so like the, the uh, and so like a lot of the focus in my school was just on features, and I just figured like, you know, why would I want to get up and go to an office every day to crank out some crappy network show? There, there wasn't like you know like the the assumption was that movies were the place to be, and then once I graduate and discover that uh, the studios really aren't buying that much original content. Uh, and everybody who wants to tell original stories is going over to TV. Uh, by the time I had that realization of like, ooh, well, maybe I should be focusing on that, the uh, the market was completely different. It was this world where everybody uh, across the entire spectrum of screenwriters was trying to work in television. Everybody had pitches. Everybody had pilots. Everybody had spec episodes. Uh, you know, I, I was like the last guy in at the party. Um, you know, to this day, I, I still haven't uh, sold any any TV show pitches that I've taken out. Um, it's it's a it's a completely different world from features. So with uh, with television, I was I was able to work on those shows because of a, a relationship from the feature world. Uh, Jen Zazirni and I have a mutual friend, uh, Will Bell super talented writer who wrote a uh, Aquaman gangster squad, uh, did a draft of justice league. He's uh, one of my favorite writers on the planet. The guy's just insanely readable. Um, he, uh, he had sold a TV uh, version of training day to CBS that went to series. And when he was staffing up his writer's room, he asked me if I wanted to come work with him. And a similar thing happened with uh, his show Deputy over over on Fox. Hmm. So it, it was a, it was a scenario where even though I've I've sold lots of stuff on the feature side and had some stuff made in TV, like that really doesn't mean jack shit. Like it it it, uh, it, it doesn't make them necessarily more eager to hire you. Uh, so it was you know just thankfully because I, I had that relationship with Will that I went to work on those shows. Right, which is what we talk about a lot on the podcast in terms of television writing. The the you know the old saying is it's not what you know, it's who you know in terms of the entertainment industry, which definitely applies to features, but it applies a lot more to television. Uh, a major, a good oh, majority of jobs are given to people the showrunner knows or has a relationship with. Oh. Not all, but a majority. Yeah, it, it's uh that is a hundred percent true. And, and even more so now that there's all of this stuff happening with the, the ATA. Right. The uh, WGATA you know, thing. Yeah. Like, like agents are, are much more plugged into the 
TV world than a lot of managers are. And so back when writers had agents, you had somebody on your team that was banging on doors and stumping for you and, uh, you know, hectoring different shows to, to give you a chance. You had somebody advocating on your behalf. And now that uh, the writers don't have agents, it means that they really have to lean on their own relationships a lot more to get staffed. Right. Um, we're running a little short on time, but I, I would be remiss if I didn't at least uh, talk to you about a very important topic that John Zazerny had mentioned to me, and I told him I was going to bring it up on the podcast. Um, what is your relationship with uh, DJ Bam Boom, and how did this come about? <laughs> <laughs> of course, John would bring that up. He, uh, <laughs> he takes uh, sadistic pleasure in uh, in in mocking my uh, my my hobbies. Uh, <laughs> so uh, my my side hustle is in music. I I, uh, I started DJing a few years ago at uh, at Burning Man, and uh, you know. Grew up, I grew up listening to a lot of electronic music, grew up going to a lot of raves. Um, it was always fascinated by that, that culture and that technology uh, and just uh, decided wanted to give it a shot myself. So uh, when I'm not writing, I'm, uh, I play at some festivals, I play at the Burn, I you know, play for uh, a couple of clubs in L.A., uh, I'm teaching myself how to produce music like on, on Ableton. Um, it's, it's something that scratches a really particular itch for me because with, with writing, I might work on something for years and never get to see it on a screen. Like I, I don't get to see the, the result of, of my work. Mm-hmm. Whereas if I'm DJing in the booth in front of a crowd, I can, instantly see the result of my work I can, I can see like okay if i mix in this track here and bring up this energy i can see the crowd affected by that and as opposed to you know waiting months or years or possibly never to see the, the result of uh of what i'm trying to do i i get like i get to see it in real time happening right. and that's uh there, there's something really thrilling about that <laughs> and I think that's also a good point. And I was going to ask you, how do you find time to DJ when you, I'm sure your slate is very full with different projects, but then every writer should have some sort of other outlet to take you away from sitting in front of your computer or sitting somewhere ruminating about how to fix problems. Cause oftentimes you find a solution when you're not looking for them, you know, when they're in the back of your head, not in the front of your head. So, I mean, I don't know if that, some sort of catharsis for you or if that helps in your thought process. But I, I think that's a valuable thing as well. Oh, absolutely. Um, you know, so many writers talk about how they get their, their best ideas in, in the shower. Right. And the, the reason for that is uh, when you are doing something that requires a little bit of attention, but not a lot, it allows your subconscious mind to, do some of the work for you. So, you know, when you're in the shower, you're not necessarily thinking about your script. You're, you're just thinking about, you know, you're washing your hair, but subconsciously your brain is going to work and, and coming up with ideas. 
So for, for me, like if I am stuck on a story point, I'll just, I'll take my iPhone, which has a little DJ program on it and my headphones, I'll start walking around my neighborhood, uh, just mixing between tracks on my phone, uh, figuring out how to put songs together, which takes a little bit of concentration, but, but not a lot. And it means that I'm not focusing on the story that I was just working on. But somehow by, by focusing on this other thing, the ideas will start to come to me. So like the, the, the two things kind of feed into each other in this, in this interesting way. Uh, the, uh, yeah, and in, in terms of the, the question about, you know, time, like uh, the honest answer is I might not have time pretty soon because I just became a dad about three weeks ago. Oh, and congratulations. I, I think, thank you. Uh, Somehow I think between writing, DJing, and being a dad, like something's got to give, and it's most likely going to be the DJ. Right. Uh, but uh, it just having some little creative outlet like that uh, that allows you to to engage with your your subconscious, I, I think it's incredibly valuable for any writer to have. Right. Absolutely. Uh, so. Uh, that's it for this time. Thank you so much for coming on today, Ian, and, and talking to us. Uh, your story is both inspiring and daunting, but mostly inspiring. Um, uh, thank you, Kevin. Be sure to follow Ian on Twitter. It's at Ian Shore. That's I-A-N-S-H-O-R-R. Uh, do you have any other social media or how can people follow DJ Bamboom? Uh, or is DJ Bamboo oh, yeah. on hiatus? I don't, I don't know what that situation's going on. <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm on uh, Instagram as DJ Bamboo, and uh, same thing on SoundCloud. Uh, and uh, on, if you go on my Twitter, uh, I uh, I'll sometimes post uh, Google Docs with pieces of writing advice. Like uh, if if you go on that feed, there's a a document I, I printed uh, a couple months ago called um, Everything You've Ever Wanted to Know About Screenwriting But We're Too Afraid to Ask. Mm. Uh, and so I, I just it's just a free resource for writers. So uh, feel free to grab that. Great. Um, so thank you again, Ian. And as always, thank you guys for listening. We do this podcast for you to help you in your journey. So as always, we appreciate you tuning in. Uh, and remember, ABW, always be writing, and we'll see you next time.